Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Okay, this is for the radio audience. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Katie Hafner, author, journalist, and New York Times contributor, where I write mostly about healthcare, so that will come in handy today. And I'm your moderator for today's program. I am pleased to introduce today's guest, Judith Finlayson, cooking expert and author of the new book, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, What You Need, that's a great title, by the way, um, What You Need to Know About Nutrition, Experience, Epigenetics, and the Origins of Chronic Disease. The food you eat and the choices you make affect your health, and according to the science of epigenetics, these choices become interwoven with the genes you pass on to your children. Thanks to the discovery of epigenetics, we now know that the experiences of your ancestors influence your health and well-being. Everything from chronic diseases to how you age and sleep is determined by the epigenetics that turn on and off your DNA sequences. In her new book, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, Judith Finlayson charts the steps for making healthy dietary choices that have shown to spark epigenetic adjustments leading to better health, not only for yourself, but for your offspring and their children in the generations to come. Ms. Finlayson has dedicated her career to sharing her wide-ranging passions, from women's history to the joys, not just the joy, but the joys of cooking, through her writing. Her love of cooking translates to her successful cookbooks, which have sold more than a million copies worldwide, and I might add she's written more than 20 cookbooks. The best-selling, she tells me, is called 150 Best Slow Cooker Recipes, and has sold a half a million copies since it came out in, what, 2001? Yes. Wow. So today we're going to have an exciting conversation about the intergenerational impact of nutrition on long-term health. So please welcome Judith Finlayson. So I'd like to ask you, um, first of all, how you, you're a former journalist, um, you are a Canadian. I think I still am a journalist. You, sti- you still are. Okay, <laughs> I wonderful. Just, I dally from time to time. Okay, basically. and you're Canadian. I am a Canadian, okay. yes. And so I'll, I'll <laughs> do some translating if we ever need to. <laughs> right. And, uh, hey? Uh, and so you started out as a journalist interested in cooking. Is that what, what was your path as a journalist? Well, I started out as a journalist with an interest in politics, really. Uh, and certainly there was a lot of, uh, at the time that I began writing, a lot of interest in women's issues. And uh, I was fortunate enough to become uh, the women's issues columnist for the Globe and Mail. Uh, for a number of years. I did that for about eight years. And when was uh, that? What year? Uh, I started in 70, 1979 oh. through to 1986, if I remember oh. correctly. So at the, around the time our ERA was... The, yes. Okay. yes, yes. So I was writing about a lot of mm-hmm. different things related to that kind of thing, uh, but really, um, but food was, oh, and I, and I don't quite know why people often ask me because I did end up having this long career in cookbooks, how I got interested in food. And, and I, I don't really know because our, my, my family was not, um, gourmands in any way. We were really, it was, I had a kind of Midwestern in, in American terms, upbringing with a mother who is a very kind of average cook. Um, but I do remember as a little kid spending time with her in the kitchen and helping her make things. Like in those days, women made Christmas cakes every year, you know, and so we'd stir up all the stuff and put it in these tins and then put it down, There was, you know, in the basement with a lot of booze over it, and it would age, and all that, and you know, it was really, and, and I just remember that I, as as a very fun time, and I, that's the only thing that I can really say 
um, motivated me or inspired my interest in so cooking. So here you had this mother who was an average cook and you thought, I want to do what she does or I want to be a little bit better or... Well, I must have thought I wanted to be a little bit better because... <laughs> so what were some of the average things she would make that... Well, my father was a real meat and potatoes man. So, you know, it was kind of like a grilled steak and mashed potatoes or baked potatoes or... And that was kind of the core meal or, you know, maybe pork chops or something like that. And every now and again, we'd have fish. But it was really very, very mundane. Mm -hmm. So um, then you gradually evolved into being more interested in food and medicine. And what I'd like to do is segue into this this topic, but we need to define some terms. One is epigenetics versus genetics. Uh, and let's start with that. Well, I think most people know now about the genome <clears throat> and the fact that you were born with your genome. Uh, you're 23 pairs of chromosomes, uh, and those are fixed. So you get half from your father and half from your mother. The new science, or the the newer science, is the science of epigenetics, uh, which was evolving really throughout the 20th century. And epi, I'm told, is from the Greek word meaning over. And it so your epigenome is the genome that functions over and above your solid genes, genome. And really, it's about you, how your genes, your genes live in an environment in which they interact uh, with various parts of your DNA and so on. And so your epigenome is how your genes are expressed. And things like nutrition is a big one. It's one we probably know most about. Uh, stress is huge. Uh, that relates to the environment. Uh, and toxins, we are now learning, uh, really influence how your genes are expressed. Uh, if you want to know, to go back to your grandparents and what this has to do... I'd rather not. What, what, <laughs> your, what your grandparents ate, what the science is showing or has been showing for a number of years is that, as I said, your genes are fixed and they are transmitted via your parents. But what we now know uh, is that certain epigenetic modifications, that is, changes to your gene expression, can also be heritable. So let me just give you a couple of anecdotal examples of this. Uh, a, British, a, a Swedish uh, epidemiologist named Lars Bergen decided to look at the little town that he had grown up in in northern Sweden. And that little town uh, was agricultural, and because it was in northern Sweden, as I'm sure you can guess, uh, some years it had wonderful crops and other years it didn't. So he looked at the cycles of feast and famine. And what he found was that in the years that there was a very abundant crop, uh, the boys who overindulged in food had grandsons who died significantly earlier than the norm. If you looked at the females, the Women who were, whose mothers were pregnant while in times of famine produced granddaughters who died much earlier than the norm. So why is this happening? Well, we now know that sperm cells, boys' sperm cells, are forming around the time of puberty. This is a very, very sensitive time in terms of development. So impacts like poor nutrition can leave epigenetic marks on the sperm cells. So two generations later, 
those grandsons were subject to dying earlier. With females, the dynamic's a little bit different in that, if you'll remember, a female baby is born with all of her eggs. So those eggs are forming while she is in her mother's womb. So if the mother is malnourished while she is pregnant, it affects the quality of those eggs. So therefore, two generations along, you are seeing granddaughters who are predisposed to dying much earlier than the norm. And that so that predates um, the person we're going to talk about, which is David Barker, right? But before you get into that, I need to, I just want to, um, uh, a couple of other terms that I want to make sure we all understand. Um, Phenotype, because you might use that word, and we'll be scratching. I try not to, because most people don't understand it. (laughs) It's a good word to know, though, right? It's a good word to know. So tell us quickly what a phenotype is. Well, a phenotype is really your collection of traits and characteristics and your genes and everything that produces you. So it's what makes you you. Yes, exactly. Um, So that's a handy word to know. And and this whole idea, which does run through the book of epigenetic inheritance, is, is... is basically, how would you describe that? Well, that's where epigenetic biological memories are linked on reproductive cells. So in the cases that I just gave you, the grandparents, the boys through the sperm cells, the girls through eggs, and those have the potential to be passed on through the generations. So think of those as biological memories. Oh, good. Okay. So uh, moving right along to our hero, well, you're the hero for writing it, but um, uh, the protagonist, if there is one in the book, uh, David Barker, the epidemiologist and his work, how did you discover it? And tell us a little bit about it. Well, David Barker was a British epidemiologist who was who did something called the Atlas of Mortality, which was published in the 70s, where he went across Britain and Wales and looked at um, data, epidemiological evidence on, on incidence of disease. He was finding that heart disease was very closely linked to the most impoverished areas of the country. And at that point, you may recall, heart disease was considered to be a disease of affluence. Um, it was linked with eating too much meat. Like gout? Red meat. Right. Red meat and fat. That's mm-hmm. when that was starting to come out. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was in the U.S., it was men who were, were, who were largely thought to have heart disease, and it was from these affluent diets. So this went counter to what the conventional medical thinking was. His statistics were showing links between high rates of infant mortality in the groups that he was studying, and the same groups had high rates of death from heart disease 70 years later. And this led him to suspect that the links of heart disease might lie in something that happened in utero. But he didn't have any evidence for that. So he stumbled on a a batch of records called the Hertfordshire Diaries, which were kept by um, a county in England known as Hertfordshire, that tracked the health of babies, all the babies born in the county from the time they were one year old, uh, from the time they were born until the time they were one year old. And this data provided him with the basis for what emerged and was published in the Lancet, a prestigious medical journal, in 1986, known as the Barker Hypothesis. And in the Barker hypothesis, he, he could show links between low birth weight, 5.5 pounds and less, and the likelihood of someone developing heart disease 
50, 70 years later. Um, It was not accepted at that point, even though it was published. But he then went on to discover other databases, most significantly the Dutch data from the Dutch Hunger Winter. The Dutch Hunger Winter was a period in the Second World War when the Germans cut off food supplies to northern uh, Holland. And because the Dutch are very, very um, dedicated to keeping good records, they had very uh, detailed records on these women who were pregnant during this period. And that showed similar links between heart disease, but adding on uh, diabetes and obesity. A third set, and it's interesting because I interviewed um, for the book Johan Eriksson, who's the epidemiologist who is Finnish and is in charge of this set of data known as the Helsinki birth cohort. And every the people who knew David Barker at this point... Johan Eriksson being one of them, Kent Thornburg being another, thought his ideas were interesting but basically kind of wacky, that there were probably co-founding factors that nobody was really looking at. So Johan said he thought he had the data and he would be able to prove that David Barker was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh in fact, he reconfirmed David Barker's uh, <laughs> study. And he, he, David Barker, and a whole crew of other people who are involved in the developmental origins of health have gone on to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies um, using these various birth cohorts and other cohorts that are coming into play, all of which confirm the links between what happened uh, in the womb, uh, largely focused on nutrition and malnutrition, largely showing uh, links between low birth weight and the risk for chronic disease later in life. Um, So it's now become, around the year 2000, um, two major epidemiologists, one from the Harvard medical school and the other being um, the woman who heads the nurses study uh, just said you know what he's right mm. uh, we we were skeptical of all of this but we can't deny it any longer and uh, so he was able to define what was happening statistically uh, and that is epidemiology and kind of around the turn of the millennium as well the science of epigenetics was coming to the fore, and epigenetics began to explain exactly how it was happening. And that is through these uh, the transmission of biological memories. Um, a very famous study, the Agouti Mouse study, the, uh, let's stop for a second. <laughs> that study, like last night I was talking to a friend, I said, I thought it was pronounced a Gaudi. I said, oh, an architect? <laughs> and then, so it's the Agouti yes. mouse study. And so then I went and looked it up. And that's really, really interesting. So explain what that was. Well, that that's a fascinating study because um, it really showed the, the value of good nutrition and the fact that you can, by providing good nutrition, reverse some of these epigenetic processes. So the agouti mice uh, were mice who were bred to be beautiful. They were pet mice. They were pet mice, just and guinea pigs. People loved guinea pigs and mice back in the... um, Victorian era. Right. And and they had a beautiful orange coat. Uh, And um, what nobody realized was that in order to... So the breeders were breeding. I mean, the thing, if you look at, you know, dog breeding and horse breeding and all of this, people kind of knew about some of this genetic. They didn't understand it scientifically, but they were doing it uh, in that they were breeding for certain traits. 
And so these mice were bred for this beautiful orange coat. Um, but it turned out that in this process, they had turned off one of the genes. That's what was giving the mice the beautiful orange coat. This agouti gene. Yes. And, um, uh, and the mice were very, very sickly. So they were dying young or predisposed to having uh, diabetes and uh, terrible, a terrible collection of chronic illness. By giving these mice a set of nutrients that supported methylation, and methylation is one of the, I knew you were going to ask, one of the epigenetic processes. It's the one that we know most about. Um, uh, so mainly some B, B vitamins, choline, there may have been one or two other things in there. Uh, they were not able to not only able, the researchers were not only able to improve the health of the existing mice, but without further supplementation to improve the health of their immediate offspring and then the next generation of offspring. Uh, so it's a really p- profound statement of how well uh, you can do by improving nutrition. And, you know, usually, um, well, reporters and, and other scientists are a little bit skeptical of studies that are done in mice and not in humans. But since all mammals have this gene, then it's something that could be extrapolated to humans. Is that? Well, the, I don't know if it was because of the agouti mice study, mm-hmm. but you will recall that we now add folate. We enrich folate. Uh, grains, rough processed grains and so on with folate in order to, uh, to, uh, reduce spinal, um, uh, defects. And, uh, and that's a big scientific experiment that we've, that we've actually been doing as a society and a number of other societies have done it. So it's out there in terms of, of, of affecting humans and it did reduce, uh, the incidence of. <clears throat> so I'd like to talk about our grandparents for a minute. Uh, I think everyone in this audience has, uh, you know, many of us and many of us listening on the podcast probably came, have parents and or grandparents who came from, you know, this period of there was dep- the depression era cooking. And then we lived in the the era of, you know, frozen dinners and, you know, canned this and that. And I had this idea for a, a time travel, like TV series thriller where someone goes back to the 50s. Don't touch that, that TV dinner. <laughs> like, like, so changing the course of epigenetics. Wouldn't that be a great TV series? Well, maybe not. So anyway, <laughs> but, but however, I, I, I do think that we, it's, it's kind of too late to change what our grandparents ate. Uh, and it seems that what you emphasize in the book is what's happening now in terms of um, maternal nutrition during nutrition during pregnancy. Uh, well, what, what we have, I mean, as you know, we, we really are, are facing, people use the words epidemic now. Uh, in terms of North American rates of uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes and heart disease. And those things are all linked. And people will tell you uh, that this is really, we now have been living, we know, what we are now seeing is the results of three generations of eating a diets high in processed foods. Uh, Starting back in when exactly? Probably the, f- the 50s. 50s. Uh, and, um, that when you go to David Barker's work, what you were seeing was the effect of things like famine, very poor nutrition, not enough food. Nowadays, what we have is something different in the sense that we are seeing the results of what's described as high calorie malnutrition. So processed foods um, have a lot of calories and really very few nutrients. 
um, in researching that book, I became much, much more aware of the uh, negative effects of some of the additives. People are starting to look at that. Like uh, which additives? Uh, uh, almost any of them. Um, uh, high fructose corn syrup also is linked with um, uh, making you feel more hungry. So you consume more and more calories right. to feel full. So they they all feed into this ongoing cycle of more and more calories, but fewer and fewer nutrients. So if you look at what effect that's having on people, it's undermining um, pregnancies because the fetus is not getting enough nutrients from the mother. Uh, we know from countries like China and India where you have generations of poor nutrition, that that too has an effect. It has a background effect because the theory is that if the fetus itself doesn't get enough nutrition from the mother, it will draw on the nutritional reserves in the mother's body. But if the mother doesn't have enough nutritional reserves to draw on, then, you know, that's an empty well. So... We're just seeing the effects of this, um, and we've we've really um, um, Kent Thornburg, who wrote the foreword to the book, says that you know this is he links it to the crisis in nutrition to the crisis that we're seeing in climate change, and we've really got to stop because it simply isn't sustain- sustainable. Um, so about maternal nutrition, you know, I'm, I'm of the um, generation where um, my mother was told by her obstetrician to gain very little weight. And she actually one day um, said yes. She was so proud of the fact that when she was pregnant with me, she gained seven pounds. I know. And, and I almost... Said, excuse me, and so it made me think. And but my guess is, I'm just I'm not a blithering idiot. So I must have gotten some. She, I must have gotten all of the nutrients, and she. That's what I've heard is that the fetus gets the nutrients first. Is that right? You're feeding your fetus. Yes. Yes. And so that that seems like it was a kind of a wrong-headed approach. Yes. To pregnancy. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 That's yes. what I thought. So, and now it is um, recommended. What is recommended during pregnancy? Well, just eat eat a eat a very nutritious diet and gain a reasonable amount of weight. And I think that depends individually. But but um, you know the basic the basic principle is is one that. Uh, I think a local Michael Pollan lives around here, doesn't he? Berkeley, uh huh. Um, you know, in his food rules, which is eat food, mostly plants, not too much, and don't eat anything your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food, which gets us into the additives and things that are in processed food. And that, I mean, that really sums it up. Um, so a diet of whole foods is high in nutrients. And it's not only the basic vitamins and minerals, but it's the phytonutrients. And the phytonutrients have phyto, phyto, um, uh, things like the antioxidants, um, flavonoids, um, isoflavins. I mean, there's a whole list of, of stuff. But those are, we're learning that those play more and more important roles in nutrition. Um, and one of the roles that some of those things play, oh, and fiber, fiber is enormously important and processed foods are notoriously low in fiber. Um, and kind of where I'm going with this is that, uh, a lot of these foods, uh, are nutrients, uh, support and feed your microbiome and, the more we learn about the, mo- the microbiome, 
the more we understand how important it is in our health. And that's physical as well as mental, or mental as well as physical. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. We're going to go to a few questions from the audience. I absolutely love this one. You're going to have to tell, raise your hand if you recognize your question. I ate a lot of Twinkies as a kid. <laughs> Are my grandkids doomed? <laughs> Even though my daughter serves them very little processed food. I don't know the answer to that because I don't know what else she would eat along with all of the Twinkies. Um, you know, and and... You, 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 did you eat the Twinkies when you, when you were pregnant? I mean, I think it also depends when you ate, when you ate the Twinkies. <laughs> because the most, the most profound value effect you're going to have is actually while you're pregnant because that's on your grandchildren because that's when your, uh, daughter's eggs are forming. And we are home to the Twinkie defense, you know, that San Francisco. So, just, just in defense of Twinkies, um, but they they don't make Twinkies anymore. I I don't mean no, to go off on a Twinkie do. tangent, no, but no. yeah, as I understand it, Twinkies. But I don't know. Is that because of the nutritional value, or they just weren't selling as well as they used to because of people like you? Probably. Right. Yeah, I, I I I I'm probably identifying myself as some kind of wacko. But to be honest, I don't think I've ever had a Twinkie in my life. So. Hard to know how I've escaped them, but uh-huh. right. Someone just said, "Who doesn't love Twinkies?" So, um, on a slightly more serious note, in Sweden, why did the cycle of feast and famine affect the grandchildren and not the parents, i.e., the first generation? That I can't tell you because I don't. I didn't look deeply into Lars Bergen's research. And I would love to talk to him. I've only seen the published studies, but I would love to talk to him about what he was seeing and why he was looking at that. Because at the time that he was doing that, um, he was really out there. Like he and, and David Barker um, were were kind of lo- starting to look at that that stuff early, really early, early on. They were the pioneers. And, um, I, I, you know, I just, I, I don't know why he, it may not have shown anything. I just, I don't know the answer to that question. Interesting. So you must have done a lot of archival research when you were, um, uh, did you see his notes or did you, what is I've seen the ledgers. I went Mm -hmm. to Southampton and saw the original Hertfordshire ledgers, which were, which were really, really interesting to see because they were like something out of, out of Dickens. Um, they started collecting the information in 1911, and uh, a woman named E. Margaret Burnside, who's one of my favorite characters, mm-hmm. uh, was she was the uh, and don't you just love this title, Chief Inspector of Midwives. That was in, what, 1911? 1911, and she was hired by the county because they were very concerned about the health of the British population around that time. And uh, so they wanted her to start looking into uh, the, the lives of, of ordinary people in, in, in Hertfordshire. So she, she actually, she organized a team of um, health inspectors and ho- I, we would call them, I guess, public health nurses today. She rode her bicycle. She rode something like several thousand kilometers in a year, riding on her bicycle from place to place. She managed to, and I'm sure from reading the archival material, 
uh, beat the uh, chief clerk of the county of Hertfordshire into submission and got scales and various equipment that she needed which that they hadn't budgeted for. And that's how she collected all of this information. And it's in these big ledgers that look like, a, and they probably were accounting books originally, um, with, with, with handwritten um, comments on the family and then little columns with little details up top, like not very clean or, you know. Wait, so the person not very clean? It, well, the family, the situation. Yeah. So there were these, so there's another, there's a substory to this. Uh, so because of all of this very detailed, sensitive information, I guess this is the right way of describing it, which may have reflected badly on the individual people. When David Barker found out about the records and went to the county to see if he could get them, he was told that he couldn't have them because there was too much personal information Ooh. in the in the ledgers and and in order to protect the privacy of the wow. people, uh, they couldn't release them. So pre HIPAA HIPAA. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So he went away and uh, he realized um, during the Second World War, uh, he and his sister and their mother, uh, like many uh, families in London, had been evacuated to the countryside to, for safety reasons because London was being blitzed. And his sister had been born in Hertfordshire, and her records were in the ledger, and because her records were there, they let him have the ledgers. All the ledgers, not yes, just, not yes, redacted, redacted, yes, redacted. Yes, yes. Really? So, that, so he almost didn't get the core information that really set all this in knowledge in motion. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you, and there, then you wouldn't have known any of this, but so why, so did you have to go to Southampton to look at the ledgers because that was the only way you could do it? They haven't been digitized or they. Well, the information, uh, has been, uh, all, I don't know if the actual records have been digitized, but the information has been computerized and so on. And the person I met with in Southampton is a woman named Dr. Caroline Fall, who actually was one of the first people to begin to work with David Barker um, on... Um, on taking, she, she was hired after he had the ledgers. And so she worked with him on taking that information and on setting up interviews with the pe finding who had died, who had lived, setting up information, uh, interviews with the people who had lived, uh, and interviewing them about their health status and so on mm -hmm. and so forth, which formed the core. But if you also want to know, in terms of the Dutch hunger winter records, the Dutch supposedly uh, destroy those kinds of records after 15 years. Why? Um, I don't know. Just, mm -hmm. I guess it's just the policy. But those records, for some reason, had been kept... Uh, and they had built a whole new um, medical facility in Amsterdam. And uh, the original building, I can't quite remember whether it was torn down or whatever, but it ended up that nobody knew what had happened to them, and they were found stored under some stair dusty staircase really? somewhere, and that's how they got retrieved. Wow. So almost Two out of the three core data sets almost disappeared. So a two-pronged question here. <clears throat> Are the grandchildren of picky the, or super tasters <laughs> doomed? Um, that's question number one. A uh, couple of components to this. What are your thoughts on um, NICU babies born 
and the future hopes for their grandchildren. It's a fascinating one. NICU? Um, the natal intensive care unit. Oh. Um, do oh. you have that in Canada? You must yeah. call it something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then do vitamin supplements help reverse the effects of what your grandparents ate? So all great questions. Do you want to take a one? Do you remember the first one? Unlike the first the, one. Yeah, I know. Like we pick, don't remember. Picky eaters. Um, yeah. Are the grandchildren of picky eaters doomed? <laughs> well, I think it depends what you're picking. You're picking at when you're eating. If you're eating nutritious foods, um, no. I mean, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're giving high, high value in terms of the nutrients. Um, yeah, and you're not, you're not doomed. I don't, I think this line of questioning is a bit kind of off track because you're not doomed. What you are is predisposed. To certain conditions. To doom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're more vulnerable to developing chronic illnesses. Let's put it that way. That's a more accurate way of describing it. And, And we do know now from studies that you can reverse the effects Mm. of epigenetic and you can do it, uh, it, it, really with very little um, effort. Uh, losing as much as, as little as six pounds, if you're overweight, uh, can significantly improve certain pathways. Mm. Uh, exercising, they've done studies to show um, that, that just in getting off your butt and improving behavior increases uh, gene expression. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've done similar things with certain kinds of diets uh, that improve aspects of gene expression. The thing is that probably one size doesn't fit all, um, that different dietary approaches probably work best for different people. So the question is to try and figure out which one really suits you best. Mm-hmm. And um, get this question of the NICU babies is really interesting. So what are your thoughts of... Um... Again, I think they, they are more vulnerable uh, because they're born at a lower birth weight and a lower birth weight... Uh, has been linked with a, an increased risk for chronic disease. But if we know that, we can begin to take steps early on. And this is a, an emerging area of research, nutrigenomics and nutriepigenetics, uh, where we can target specific nutrients to certain aspects of gene expression. But that's still kind of out there. And the question was specifically about their grandchildren. So, um, so these babies that are born super, super premature. But, um, it, so it sounds like what you're saying is that if they have a um, kind of t- take very good care of themselves and end up, you know, warding off the worst of yes, then they that that's the kind of thing that could be yes reversed. Um, this is something I know you wanted to talk about, and it handily came in as a question. Um, please tell us what you'd recommend for we who have di- uh, type 2 diabetes. That's, you know, there's a whole section in the book on the various dietary approaches to type 2 diabetes. And that really is a kind of one size doesn't fit all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion within the diabetes community. I mean, there, uh, and I, I tried to stay to kind of, because I knew that before I started writing the book. Um, and so I didn't want to wade in because experts disagree dramatically on this. Um, but, you know, I imagine that it's really a kind of trial and error or, or working with someone who really understands some of this to figure out which dietary approach works best for you. But because ba- some people find the keto works very well, but those, those keto diets are certainly, I've been told, not good if you're planning to get pregnant because you're not getting mm-hmm. a full range of nutrients to support fetal development. 
Um, so it's, it's kind of a delicate balance. The Mediterranean diet seems to work, our ver- you know, variations on that theme, um, seem to work best for most people. Um, but what I would, I mean, you can't go wrong with just good whole foods and a wide variety of nutrients. So, you know, eat the rainbow. Um, oh, that's so San Francisco. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you eat the rainbow to get to get the wide variety of nutrients. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, concentrate and maybe not maybe miss out on certain things that you really need. So let's let's talk a minute about the microbiome. I know you said to me in the green room that you were sort of surprised that that that, that there was been since you started the book tour for this book so much emphasis on the microbiome and tell me what what you've been telling people. Well, the microbiome was in a way a kind of add-on chapter to the book. Uh and it, it it grew a bit like Topsy. Um, David Barker didn't write a lot about the microbiome because uh, it really wasn't... It was just starting to come to the fore. At, he died in 2013, mm. about that point. But when I was talking to Kent Thornburg about something, uh, he did tell me that David felt that he had invented the the concept of the hygiene hypothesis. And the hygiene hypothesis, as you may know, <clears throat> is the theory that uh, our lack of microbial diversity from our overly hygienicized environments uh, is contributing to various forms of ill health in a nutshell and, and an oversimplification. Well, I love your section in the book where you talk about, you know, get dirty and dust and let your animals. Yeah. Come is in your dog, is your dog a probiotic? The answer is yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let them give you big slurpy kisses if that's what you want. Okay then. Get... So any thoughts on the rising incidence of autism and epigenetics and ge- and gene expression. Again, uh, there's not a huge amount of science here, but it's an area that people are looking at, and it ties into the subject we just introduced, which is the microbiome. Uh, there is seems to be some evidence that improving. Uh, microbial, certain types of microbial uh, diversity and so on in children with autism can cure autism. But my own sense, and I don't know a lot about it, but just looking at it from a, a large overview, is that there are, you know, various types of autism in various positions along the autism continuum. Uh, and I suspect that different things work for different people and that there may be different causes of autism. What we're finding with a number of conditions <laughs> is that it's a combination of your genes. You have a genetic predisposition to start with, but what really kicks it into gear is your gene expression. Um, so it's a combination of, of genes and epigenome. So, Another question from the audience. Um, medications ingested by the mother cause birth defects in the next generation, not two generations hence, i.e. thalidomide, DES. Well, with DES, and that's a horrible story, uh, as you know, uh, they are seeing now uh because don't forget a lot of this stuff and a lot a reason why a lot of the studies are done on mice for instance uh is that with with humans the lifespan's so long that we can't you know it's hard to go through several generations and see what's actually happening um with des they are actually beginning to see now in a second generation 
that there are effects and they're beginning to see that uh, it may have effects on males, some male offspring as well. So that's a really horrible story. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. Another one, given the multi-generational impact of diet, what is your stance on the amount of information that couples considering adoption should be given about the parents slash grandparents of the child? It's a very interesting question. It's a really good one. We we specialize in great questions here at the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I, I it's it's a very interesting question. It came up uh, in a way with a dinner we were having with friends a couple of weeks ago. Uh, over someone who who had a child with a sperm donor and hadn't really thought to inquire uh, about the background, you know, you look at the 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 existence, the the kind of front story. Um, I don't know, but you know, I'm not sure that that even asking would people know. I mean, yes, a question of of. For certainly, with sperm donors, the the key question I think would be, what were they doing around the time of puberty? Because hmm. that's when it has the most impact when those sperm cells are forming. Um, so you know, we have studies with kids who smoked around the time of puberty, and that predisposed their progeny to um, metabolic disorders. Um, so, you know, um, I don't know, with egg donors, I guess it's what your, what your, what did your grandmother do? Mm-hmm. Was she exposed to toxins? So it's really, you know, life experience, nutrition, toxins are the three key things. Um, so were there periods of poor nutrition, uh, during, uh, particularly sensitive developmental times like egg formation in a female or sperm development in a male, toxic exposure, trauma, uh, adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. have a, a, a big impact on, uh, epigenetic processes. Because that's the body adapting to troublesome situations, and so the genes are are changing. <clears throat> How do you feel about lab-grown eggs, lab-grown meats, and how might this affect our future generations? <laughs> we keep tossing you the easy ones. <laughs> Where do we get to the hard questions? You know, I, I think that's just way above my pay grade, <laughs> to be honest. No mansplaining here. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. I, I guess it would depend on the skill of the, of the, of the laboratory technologists. Are they, what are they doing? What are they feeding those lab-grown eggs? Are they giving them real nutrients or are they giving them synthetics and what effect would synthetics have? I mean, it's just the combinations are, are endless and I don't know. Well, and also it seems that there would have to be some kind of controlled and longitudinal sort of set of studies done. And I'm, I'm sure that Nutrition experts are must be doing that kind of research now, just because we we're just at the era where we're we're just at the beginning of of consuming that kind of food. So my guess is that there's research being done. I I don't know. Um, so it, can you explain to me what um, prebiotics? Because in the book I kept getting confused: prebiotics versus probiotics. I can. That's a much easier question. <laughs> um, this relates to the microbiome. So your microbiome is really the collection of bacteria that live on and in your body. And the more we learn about it, the more we know that it's really very closely connected with your health and well-being. It, yeah, really important. I mean, it's really it's getting so much attention. And... Uh, 
probiotics are the beneficial bacteria that live in your gut. You can increase the number of probiotics on a temporary basis for sure, um, perhaps to a small extent on a more permanent basis uh, by by helping probiotics to colonize, by taking probiotics as a capsule or by eating probiotic foods. And probiotic foods are things like yogurt, kefir, sauerkraut, fermented foods, those kinds of things. Sauerkraut. Sauerkraut, because it's fermented. Uh, Kimchi, fermented pickles. Those bacteria go into your body when you consume them and are active kind of for a short period of time, although some may colonize. This is an area of research, and there's a lot of argument about that. Prebiotics are the indigestible components of food, mostly fiber, but not always fiber, that are contained in things like whole grains are probably the best example because we know that whole grains are high high in fiber and a lot of that fiber is prebiotic fiber. Prebiotics feed. They're like feeding, like 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 you know, giving your bacteria something to eat. They feed the bacteria in your gut, the good bacteria. And the good bacteria produce what are described as metabolites, some of which you've probably heard of short-chain fatty acids. These are very beneficial substances that they produce that then go on to really benefit your body in all kinds of very different ways. So if you're looking for ways to really improve the quality of your gut bacteria, uh, I would recommend that you eat uh, a lot of prebiotic foods, and that's probably a very beneficial uh, health strategy that you could use to reverse some negative gene expression patterns, probably. That's news to me. That's news you can use. That's news you can use. Yeah, right. Um, well, we're we're about to reach the end of this, and I wanted to ask you. Um, you've so you've written a lot of cookbooks. What do you find to be your most enduring recipe that people come back to? Uh, I, I love asking about recipes, so thought I'd just ask you. You must have a favorite or two. Well, I I, I gee, I don't know. Um, you know, one of one of the the favorite recipes. Uh, actually, I made it in Paris uh, at a cooking demonstration. Was the beef carbonade, which is a beer stew mm. uh, made with beef in. Um, and when I made it in Paris, unbeknownst to me, I went to. Um, a bon marché, the the oh. uh, the the uh, grocery store, which oh, I just love that place. Uh, and uh, I went to the butcher and you know said I needed uh, la viande pour la la, la carbonade or whatever in my awful fractured French. And he looked just said, oui, madame. A, then, but he said, and so you would like really three or four the four three or four different types of beef for your carbonade. I said. Really? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and I said, but sure. <laughs> so he gave me, he gave me these three or four different cuts of beef and I went off and made my Parisian carbonade, which was the best carbonade I'd ever made in my slow cooker. And in that's Paris. in, is that in 150 recipes? It is. It's they- in the revised edition. Mm hmm. Wonderful. But I can't guarantee that you can get the three types of, three or four types of beef that the the uh, butcher in Paris put into it. But it's pretty good. And we won't even get into the big controversy over whether we should be eating red meat. Let's just 
um, accept well, red, with thanks your red meat is is uh, I mean in my opinion uh, I don't eat a lot of it but I do eat some of it and um, meat is an important uh, supplier of vitamin B12. It's very hard to get vitamin B12 uh, if you're a vegan. And um, uh, B12 is one of the vitamins that those poor little agouti mice got. The, back to the agouti mice. <laughs> Uh, well, that's it for our our program. And I'd, so our thanks to Judith Finlayson, cooking expert and author of the new book, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, What You Need to Know About Nutrition Experience, Epigenetics, and the Origins of Chronic Disease, and clearly much more than that. So we want to remind everyone here that signed copies of Judith's book will be available following the program, and she will be pleased, yes, uh, to sign them. So I'm Katie Hafner, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. That's a good talk. Some of those questions.